0: So, uh, being that it's Christmas time, I thought that uh, I would bestow someone a uh, a gift here tonight. Uh, So, how many of you guys grew up on Play-Doh, right? How many of you guys ate Play-Doh recently? Several of you. Now, uh, (laughs) I I like this on the back here. It says, notice to parents, contains wheat, you know, like if you put it in an oven, it will rise like bread or something, you know. Um, I like to consider myself a decently creative uh, individual. However, I am horrible with Plato. Like, I can do a baseball, you know? Uh, I can do a basketball. I'm really good at, you know, at like a, a rattlesnake. Um, anything else for me in Plato, I'm just, I'm pretty horrific at. Um, but, but I thought it'd be fun just to give, give this away tonight. So, who has the closest birthday to today? Who has the absolute closest birthday? When, when's your birthday, Zach? The 14th. Is, can anyone beat the 14th? I don't even know what day it is today. What is the day? It's the 10th. Anyone closer than the 10th? We got one back here? The 14th as well? Oh, the 4th. Anyone can... The 10th is today. The 10th is today. Oh, you're the 5th. Okay. Well, Zach, you want to come up here? I think you win, man. I think you win. So come on up. This is... Uh, and th- there's some diagrams here, Zach, so you can like make Nemo and uh, seahorses and stuff. So yeah, you're welcome. Happy birthday. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I did keep one for myself, Zach, so I hope you don't mind. Now, uh, tonight um, is actually maybe uh, one of the opportunities where I, I believe doctrine and view of God could change the most in a long time since we've uh, been here. Um, now, the whole premise of Plato is that it's, uh, and I'm I you know, having difficulty here getting this out, the whole premise of Plato is, is you take this little... This is why I don't like it, because it, like, gets in your fingernails, and I, I don't like to be dirty, you know? <laughs> but but the whole premise of Plato is, is you can do with it whatever you want. You can shape it. Uh, for those of you that are super creative, you can, like, get out multiple colors. It always really offends parents, right, when their kids mix the colors, and, and then they leave the cap off, and it becomes, you know, like a rock, right? Um, so I, I was thinking a lot about Plato... Uh, in preparation for this teaching tonight, um, because I, I believe, here's my belief, and I'm, I'm going to be very real, upfront, bold um, with you all, is, is I think that many of us live, we would never say it, but many of us live like God is a, is a little ball of Play-Doh, and uh, we're constantly in our life forming him to be the kind of God that we want him to be. Um, so some days uh, God looks like this, a little extra color. Uh, some days he's, you know, flattened out like a pancake. Other, other days he's as hard as a rock. Other, other days we don't even know where he is. I, I really believe that many of us exist like God in our hands is just constantly forming, that we're shaping him. Uh, that we're making him into some kind of convenient God. Uh, Some days we want him to be more merciful, other days not so much. The days you want your enemies to be smited, like, hey God, could you not be merciful today and go ahead and bring the wreck on that person, right? Uh, Some days you want God to be loving and other times not. Some days you want God to be right in your face, ever present, and other times you desire him to be distant. Sometimes you want the word to speak to you and other times you'd rather it stay dormant. What I'm wondering, jumping into tonight, is how many of you have become this Plato God mentality? Here's what C.S. Lewis says I love this. I want God, not my idea of God. Anybody else? If you do, if you want God and not your idea of God, then I'm asking you to take a journey with me tonight. We're going to cover more texts tonight than we ever have in Matthias' history four chapters, okay, I'm not going to read it all, you're going to see why as we as we get into this, but these four chapters, which uh, when you get to them, they kind of seem like just reiteration of stuff we've already learned actually tonight, maybe potentially the most transformational scripture uh, in the book of Exodus. So that said, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 35, if you could, um, Anyone want this blue plate out here? Okay, Lindsay, here you go. Happy Christmas. I don't know. Okay, it's your half birthday. Well, praise praise God. Okay, good. Alright, Exodus chapter 35. At the end of last week we prayed in boldness that God would do a work in purging you of the thing that you hold on to the most in terms of your generosity. And I hope that you guys have experienced the power of answered prayer. We watched the nation of Israel give tremendously generous to build the tabernacle, to make the priestly garments, to build the bread of the presence table, the altar of incense, the altar of sacrifice, all these things. Like these people are just lavishing their contributions. And tonight, we get to watch and see what happens to all of this. So here we go in verse 30 of Exodus chapter 35. We're gonna go all the way to chapter 39 tonight. That's right, here we go. Strap on your seatbelt, all right? Then Moses said to the people of Israel, see, the Lord has called by, huge word in this chapter, what? by name. He's called by name. And I love this. I did a little bit of research back and I did a whole lot of research forward in the, in the scripture. This is a pattern. Maybe you've experienced it yourself. God has a tendency of calling people by name. Let's take Abraham. Hey, Abram, A pagan man from a pagan family from a pagan land in Genesis 12. And all of a sudden, God shows up and says, Abram, later changes his name to Abraham. Uh, Many of you guys will remember the salvation of, of Paul, who was then called Saul. Remember what the Lord says. What? Come on. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And now, in the intimacy of what he's done in your life, maybe the echoes of you first hearing God say your name. And some of you are like, come on, Mark, seriously? Like, I've never audibly heard God on a microphone or something say my name. That's awkward and weird. But an intimate God intimately knows his people. Jesus says, My sheep know my voice. The power of when God calls you by name. Uh, in my life, when he said, Mark, here's what I have for you to do, it's beautiful. And God calls these guys that we saw in uh, Exodus chapter 31 be called Abezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And then verse 31 and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship. In other words, all the people of Israel have brought their contributions, and this guy, and there's going to be a couple of them that we saw in Exodus 31 who God gifted, called, empowered, are now gonna be called to task. He he had said in Exodus 31, these two dudes are gonna be the head craftsmen of all the things that I wanna do. Listen, wouldn't it be crazy, wouldn't it be crazy if all of a sudden God just called you on the phone, right? You're holding your phone, and just, just randomly out of nowhere, the Lord, like you look down, and on the caller ID, it said it said God. You know, it, it'd, be, it'd be pretty weird, wouldn't it? Like, it like all of us would kind of be taken aback. Like, did I have God in my color ID? Like, th- th- this seems this seems strange, you know. If if that happened, and, and you answered the phone, and all of a sudden God was like, "All right, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to I want you to go over here, and I want you to talk to this person." A little late there, Sean. It would have been a lot better a couple seconds ago. <laughs> we had that whole stage, and it just didn't go very well. So I, I just abandoned ship, bro. Okay, so. It's all good. We'll, get it, we'll do it better in the second service. No worries. You'll get, you'll get, you'll get a second chance, right? <laughs> if all of a sudden God, okay, um, called you, it, it would have been beautiful, right? Like, while I'm holding it up, it just, you know, and I had it like, I had the name God, so I was going to show the front row anyway. Um, so much for drama, right? Um, if he called and he said this, he said, all right, uh, so here's the plan. I want you to go over here. And then he hung up. And, and you were, like, you, were like, tried to call him back, and he, like, no-diced you, right, to voicemail, right? This is God. Please leave a voicemail, right? In a Charlton Heston kind of voice. Um, you would be angry. Why? Because, because, like, you would want to know more details. But, but God, like, what about this, and how, how is this going to work? And I know you want me to go over here, but when I get there, how, like, how is this going to work? How is this going to happen? Here's my question. Why does God call people and then empower them? In other words, why does God call people and never leave them to themselves? You want to know why? So that no man may boast. In other words, if he called you and I and said, go over here, and then we are left to our own devices and our own discernment, and then we got there and we served, and all we had was God's calling and we got there, and we served well, and we saw fruit be bore, what would often be going on in our mind, right? Like, hey, God, thanks for sending me over here, because when I got here, I really figured out what I could do. Like, I figured out how, how gifted I was. I, I actually, I found the place that you wanted me to go, God, and man would begin to boast. We often have done this, even though God's pattern in Scripture is to call and empower. He never leaves you unempowered so that you can be fully reliant on him. If he didn't do that, the man would have the opportunity to boast even more. The man already boasts, even though God is empowering. Like, see this in your life. See this in your heart, right? Like, God does an amazing job of saying, I want you to go here. I want you to do this. And here's everything that you need to do it. We may not see it, but he always provides in that way. And in this case, he's done the same. He's provided these dudes, these craftsmen, if you will, dude in the Hebrew, all right? These craftsmen with intelligence, with craftsmanship, with knowledge, with all of these things so that they can design all of this. To devise, verse 32, artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for, uh, for work and every skilled craft. Here's what's beautiful. We don't know if these guys were any kind of craftsmen before this, but what we do know is they become it. Uh, oftentimes, uh, uh, many of you guys, you see some gifts that you have, and then all of a sudden, God just floods you with empowerment, and you see what God can do with them. So my guess is, these guys were a little bit more gifted than I I am. Like, I, I have no handiness, okay? I barely know what a hammer is. If you went down to my toolbox, or the lack thereof, you would see like a screwdriver and one nail just in case, you know what I'm saying? Like, just in case we have to board up one door for whatever reason, I can figure that out. But So I don't think these guys were like completely inept before, but I feel like all of a sudden they have this this rush of skilled craft. Verse 34 says, and he has inspired him to teach both him and uh, 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 Ahiliab, the son of uh, Ahishamach of the tribe of Dan. He, verse 35, he has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. God calls these men. He's getting ready, is God, to build the place of worship. So the issue is worship. And what we're getting ready to see is four chapters worth of detail that we've already studied really in a lot of ways of God's design of this place of worship takes it tremendously serious. So here we go, verse 1 of Exodus 36. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary, look at this, shall work in what? What's the word? In accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. In accordance with all. I love when my kids play blocks. I love blocks. I love Legos. Okay, if you're a parent, a good chance you have, you know, scattered Legos around. Good chance a child of yours has swallowed a Lego at some point, right? Um, you, like, pull it out of the diaper, right? Oh, nice one. Got a Lego there. Okay, I'm sure that hurt, right? So, <laughs> like, they're small enough, right? Legos are beautiful, but, but often here's what happens, okay? What the boys do when they play Legos is they take the massive can of Legos, and they don't, like, piece by piece get, get one of them out, Right? I mean, they dump the thing over uh, generally on one another, right? So they're like just swimming in Legos. Then they like to get in the Lego box and play. Well, eventually it's time for cleanup, the worst time for a four- and a five-year-old boy, you know? Hey, doll, Cinematics, uh, we need to clean this up. And they both look at, look at me like I'm a caveman, right? What? Clean up? Dad, like, what are you talking about? You're just going to get it later, Dad. I, I know, kids. I'm, I'm trying to teach you how to clean up, okay? So here's my instructions. Kids, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put all the Legos in the box. Then I want you to put the lid on the box because heaven knows you're going to try to tip it over after you've already cleaned it up. Then I want you to scoot it there over in the corner so that when mom gets home, she's not angry with us, okay? And tell me that I didn't clean up. All right, boys, so let's work together. You know, so I leave them for whatever, three or four minutes, this happens often. And I come back and and there's the box with about 75% of the Legos in it. The lid is cockeyed, not on it. And it's not in the corner sitting in the middle of the room. And my boys come down like, they've just, like, they, like, like they need a trophy, you know? I come down, they're like, Dad, check that out, you know? Like, like we cleaned up. I'm, I'm like, no, you didn't. Like there's still Legos on the carpet, but Dad, we put some of them in there. That's not what I said. I said put all of the Legos in the box, the lid on top, and it in the corner. And they're celebrating 75% obedience, right? Not all the way. Not all in accordance. And so they get 75% of a whooping. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> Discipline and love by the grace of God, right? Listen, would you agree? We're amazing, amazing at cutting corner obedience. Thinking that God doesn't see it. That like God comes down the stairs and he's like and we think he's gonna say, Well done. You guys did about half of what I, I told you to do. Way to go. You know, 50%, that's not bad. In a major league a contract, you, know, like you do very well batting 50%, so well done. No, like God says, all in accordance, do everything. And when we studied the construction of the tabernacle before, like tremendous detail down to the cubit. Remember that? Oh yeah, a whole lot of cubits tonight, okay? They obey, verse two. And Moses called Bezalel and Oheliab and, and every craftsman in whose mind, look at this, the Lord had put skill Everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. God puts this in their heart. They come and they, verse 3, look at this, Receive from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. Now, this is a huge moment in scripture. Why? Take a guess, come on. Why is it huge? Okay, all of these craftsmen now in their possession have like the biggest bank ever. You guys know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, these, you know, maybe simpletons, craftsmen, are looking at gold and silver and earrings. They, like, you know, start playing house with each you know They're, like, dressing up and stuff, right? Like, they have all of this opportunity to now become self-serving. Uh, maybe they could grab some and run for the hills, literally. Um, uh, maybe they could get away with just putting a little bit back in their pocket. Being deceitful with what God has given uh, so the question is, what will they do? All of a sudden, all of the contributions of the people of Israel, hundreds of thousands of items are brought. And Moses says, all right, boys, go to work. Let's build the tabernacle for the Lord. They still, in the verse three, kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning. What is this telling you? The people aren't stopping. Their generosity doesn't just need a, 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 you know, a back rub and a high five, They keep coming. In other words, they're not being generous so that everyone sees them being generous. They're really, in their heart, generous. And they keep coming back morning after morning. Watch this. This is unbelievable in the scripture. So that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task, verse 4, on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and they said to Moses. So they end up coming to Moses, and here's what they say. The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. Oh, for this to be the cry of the church. Have you ever heard this ever in your life? Hey, listen, guys, shut her down. Shut her down, you know? This is too much. Like, you're, you're being too generous. Like, this is overwhelming us. I mean, I, look, I, I was probably conceived in the church. I've been in the church all my life, been around Christians all my life. Like, I, did I just say that I'm sorry? <laughs> I'm just guessing. Um, And I have never, I have never, I have never once, I have never once heard the church have to say, shut it down. We have too many coats for the children in our city. Listen, we have too many toiletries to help those who are in need. We have too many resources to help the single mom. Like, guys, please, just take it back home. I've never heard anyone say that. Well, the question is why? Because we live with this perceived ideal of what quantities are. And we're great at thinking someone else is providing it. Let me say it another way. We're great at riding the coattails of someone else's generosity. Can you picture this moment? Like the craftsman, go to Moses. Hey, listen, man, we can't even see our work anymore. Please shut her down. So here's what Moses says. So Moses, verse six, gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. This is, now this comes down as, as a command. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. Are you kidding me? So the people were what? What's the word? Restrained. Like I picture like people are having to like, listen, turn around. No, I want to bring my stuff. No, Moses gave the command. You have to turn it. i mean, they're literally having to be held back is the picture I have in my mind. This is Generosity. Now we have a good working definition of it. If someone would have to restrain you to give your time, resources, love, energy to something, if someone would literally have to pull you back, then maybe that's generosity. Moses, hey, listen, shut her down. Verse 7, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Well, why is it sufficient? It's because God gave them it. Uh, When the scripture says that his grace is sufficient, like, that's what it means, there's no more grace needed. There's not another sacrifice to be given because he's already given it in its totality. Okay. So what happens now is they begin to make things, build things. And we're going to go piece by piece quickly. We're going to work through about two and a half chapters worth in probably seven or eight, 15 minutes, all right? And we're going to show pictures, and it'll be a lot of fun. Many of these I, I drew earlier, okay? Okay. And so let's start where they start, okay? Here we go, next uh, slide, if you can. Uh, This is is where they begin, okay? They begin with the building of this this tabernacle, okay? So all the craftsmen, all the people working begin first by, by building this. And as you read along in your scripture, you can see that. And you remember the dimensions, the the cubits wide, all the curtains, all the goat hair that was involved. This is where the structure begins. Next uh, slide. Okay, uh, uh, use the scripture that's there too, Andrew, if you could. I have scripture in between each one, I believe. Okay, there we go. And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. Okay, so there's the tabernacle. Now go to my next scripture if you could. Okay. The next thing that they do, uh, Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length. A cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. So after the tabernacle, they begin to make the Ark of the Covenant. What sits in the Ark of the Covenant? The what? The ten words of the Ten Commandments. Okay, picture of the Ark. There it is. All right. Oh, you remember the two cherubim that sit on the top of the Ark? It's all gold-plated. The cherubim uh, connect together in the middle, forming the mercy seat. And you remember when we studied this earlier, and the reason why we're, we're, we're going over this quickly is because we studied verbatim this exact text uh, in the earlier parts of Exodus as God was commanding it. Now they're building it, okay? Uh, we have uh, another picture here of the ark, okay? Uh, this one I took down at the antique store earlier. Um, beautiful. So the 10 words, the 10 commandments were held in there. Uh, there, were, there would be poles that would be on the side, as I described earlier, that the ark then could be mobile, Okay, so they, they make the ark. They fashion the ark. He also made uh, the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length and a cubit its breadth. And uh, I shared with you guys before, and by the way, I've heard many of you guys talking in cubits, which I'm very grateful for. Okay? We'll see this weekend when the movie Exodus comes out if, if like, they, they incorporate the word cubit. It'd be awesome. Um, but a cubit is from the end of a man's uh, elbow to the tip of his middle finger, okay? That's how much a cubit is, right? So they make this, this table of acacia wood. Let me show you what the table is. Next slide. Uh, I've conveniently placed a, a black box around the table. The table was inside the tent, and what the table uh, did is it held the bread of the presence, okay? Uh, there would be a, a piece of bread or a, a segment of bread representing each tribe of Israel, and so then they go to work and they make the table. Next slide. They keep working. He also made the lampstand of pure gold. I mean, this is a lot of work, guys. I did the best job that I could in understanding how long this exactly takes. And there's so, there's so much a range of time here. We're not exactly sure. He made the lampstand of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers were of one piece. Here's a picture of the lampstand. Okay? Uh, that's Pastor Jared there in the picture. Um <clears throat> So really beautiful, and this sat uh, in the tent itself, in the tabernacle, across uh, from the bread of the presence. So when you made your way in, you would see the lampstand on your left, which was the sole lighting uh, element, and then on the right-hand side, as the priest would come in, uh, they they would see the bread of the presence. Okay, Next uh, facet of this, Okay, then in Exodus 37, verse 25, he made the altar of incense of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit, and its breadth was a cubit. It was square, and two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece. I I did my best here on this. There's many different renditions of this. Uh, Dawson drew this with colored pencil. Um, Just before uh, the curtain that separated the holy place and the holy of holies, okay, on the left side here is where the Ark of the Covenant sat, and you guys can see that. Only the high priest would go in one day of the year, on the Day of Atonement, into the holy of holies. This altar of incense sat right before that, and the whole premise was that it was making worship, wafting, as it were, worship to the Lord. So they make the altar of incense. Next slide. He made then, all of a sudden in Exodus 38, look at how quickly we're moving. He made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was his length and five cubits its breadth. It was square, thankfully. And three cubits was like, wouldn't it be hilarious if God commanded it to be like, and I want you to build a massive arch, right, and like in all the dimensions. It's square, figure it out, okay? Next slide, and this, here's a picture of it, okay? Uh, this we fashioned uh, over at a park in St. Charles earlier, just so you guys can get a good picture of it. Um, so, as, as the priests and, and here in the court, this would kind of be the general area, this massive altar uh, sat kind of right in the middle. And uh, as they would sacrifice animals on the altar, uh, the blood would drip down and then they would put the blood on the four corners of the altar to make sacrifice uh, to the Lord. Um, Massive, massive altar. So they build that too. He made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? Who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. Beautiful, okay. So here's a picture of the basin uh, I, I kind of zoomed out here with my canon. Um, the, basin, the basin sat right before the tent. And the reason was, is as the priest made his way, after he gave sacrifice, guess what would be on his hands? Okay, there'd be blood on his hands. He would wash his hands in the bronze basin and then would make entrance into the tent. Okay, so they make this bronze basin. Then he made the court. And by the way, all of these passages are just the, like the first part of the, of the section in your subtitle. You can go back and you can look verbatim at all the scripture we've already studied. Okay. The detail is, in, is insane. I mean, down to the nth degree. They're making all these things from the pile of stuff that the Israelites brought. Crazy. Then he made the court. For the south side, the hangs of the court were a fine twined linen, a hundred cubits, and on and on. Uh, chapter 38 says, this is uh, kind of a good a picture of the overall court. So you can see Uh, the dimensions and the width and uh, where the the tent sat. And there you see the altar of incense in Fuego, right, for the bilingual. Um, So that they enclose all of this in the progression of the building. Next uh, slide. From the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made the holy garments for Aaron, as the Lord had commanded Moses. So they make the altar of incense, they make the basin, they make the court, they make the tent, and then, for those of you that were here with us, they make the garb that the high priest would have to wear when he enters the holy place. Here's what it looks like, okay? I mean, that's a pretty great looking deal there, right? Like, I hope you guys would go out on a Saturday night in that, right? Got the little bells on the bottom there so that, The pomegranates, okay, so you can be heard from a mile away. Uh, Next slide. This is uh, the worshiping high priest, okay? Now, what happens? Okay, three chapters worth of description of what they do. So what happens in the end? After they do all these things, do they do it right? That's the question. Uh, Scripture answers it. Check this out. According to all that the Lord had commanded, Exodus 39, verse 42, So the people of Israel had done all the work. And then Moses, picture this. He's he's like the building inspector, right? Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded, uh, so had they done it. And then Moses blessed them. Could you imagine this moment? I mean, the intricacy of the gold, the intricacy of the weaving, I mean the, the, the magnificence of this whole entire thing and you'll remember these two individuals are from the tribe of anyone remember Judah, the Levites, the priestly tribe, we're gonna be the ones to get to use it. They build it, weren't even gonna get to go in it. And so they step back, and what scripture says, and scripture's true, is I mean, down to the T, down to the cubit, they follow God's instructions. They do just as God had commanded. And can you just picture Grandpa Moses walking around, right, like measuring the cubits, you know, like, man, right, right on, eight cubits, okay, you know. He's got his hands in his cloak, you know, and he's kind of like looking around, you know. And, you know, well, well done, boy. I'm like, imagine this moment. Imagine them commissioned by God to do God's work. What does it tell you about their hearts? They must have taken it serious. The severity, listen, the severity of the calling of God must have sat on their shoulders on the day-to-day basis. But simultaneously, they look at what God's provided and they see in their life how God has empowered. So they had to walk around this and just be like, God, what an amazing symbol of your grace. Now, here's my question. Next slide. Tabernacle, ark, table, lampstand, altar of incense, altar of burnt offering, basin, court, high priestly garments, all these things. Why doesn't God just make them? Like, what's all this fooling around for, right? Would you agree with me? God can make an ark if he wants. Agree? I mean, he could have just been like, you know, ark, there, go. I part of the sea, now I'm going to make my own ark. So why doesn't God just, like, become a magician God or something? Like, what is it? why doesn't he just make it all happen? Why doesn't he just say, all right, people, you guys sit over in the corner on a chair and watch me do my thing here. And he, like, lifts a cloud, drops some smoke, and then pretty soon the smoke rises and whop And it's all done, and they're like, sweet, you know, I'm glad we didn't have to do any of that, right? Why does God not do that? He certainly performs many miracles in the scripture. And he certainly has performed a lot of miracles in your life. But why has he still called us to service? Can I tell you why? Is that cool? Exodus chapter 2. Here's what it says. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. This seems like the Christmas story, by the way, here at first. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Pharaoh wants all these kids dead, so they hide these kids for three months. When she could hide him no longer, which means he's getting a little bit antsy, maybe a little bit cryy, if, if that's a word, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and uh, daubed it with uh, bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, Okay? just around the river bend, like the, you know, the Pocahontas song is coming to mind now. Verse 4, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds in her servant uh, woman, and she took it. Like Mark, what does this have to do with anything? This is where Moses started. like I'm reading these four chapters and all the details that go into the building of the tabernacle. And then what came into my mind right away was this story. Where Moses began, a baby in a basket, floating down a river in the hand of God. Why in the world Wouldn't God, listen, why in the world wouldn't he just release his people? Why in the world did God allow Moses to be put in a basket, floating down a river, be raised as an Egyptian, leave Egypt when he's 40, come back to Egypt when he's 80, and all of a sudden, empowered by God, stand in front of his half-brother And command his half-brother, in the face of all that has happened, to let all of these slaves go. Why would God do this? He could have put Moses in the corner. He could have done whatever God wanted to do, he could have done. So why does he do this? Because he has a story. And for the humbling reality, he in this case has allowed Moses to be a part of it. There is something glorifying to God about the story of a baby who's put in a basket left for dead. Who all of a sudden leads the nation of Israel out of slavery. Uh, There's something glorifying to God about a person who sits in an office and every single day builds a relationship and one day as the spirit prompts, shares the gospel and watches their coworker be saved. There's something glorifying to God about seeing people go through tremendous hurt and pain And then all of a sudden, experience joy and hope and grace and love because of the work of the gospel in their life. There's something glorifying to God about involving people in his story. And I pray that for every single one of us tonight. We're humbled by it. Uh, next slide. I want you to see this. On my estimation, there's only two times in the scripture where the word author is used as it pertains to God. Here's what Peter says. Here's what happens. A lame beggar has just been healed. Peter stands up on Solomon's porch, and he begins to drop it. A lot of doubters, a lot of Jews, a lot of people asking a lot of things. And here's what he says. But you denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the what? The author of life, the author of life in Hebrews. The author and what? Perfector of our faith. The author of life is God. Some Plato god that we can form and fashion? Or does God have a story? Is he the author of it, the writer of it? And for his own glory, is he bringing it to fruition? He could have just made the ark, made the lampstand, made the basin, but for whatever reason, in his great story, he puts a baby in a basket, and 80 years later, puts that same baby in front of an entire nation and says, let my people go. So here's the question I wanna ask you. Next slide. Next slide, if you can, Andrew. Do you believe that God is in your story or that you are in his? If there's a question that literally could grip our body, I believe that maybe this is the question tonight. Do you believe that God is in your story or do you believe that you're in His? That's the question. Here's the statements. Next slide. If you believe that God is in your story, you will forever be shaping God. He's like a puppet. You're adding him in as you being the author when it's convenient, when it's nice, when it fits, when it's pleasant, when it provides you an advantage. You'll write him in like a great storyteller that you are. And we're creative people. You may not give yourself the gift of creativity, but we are creative. And so God just becomes this puppet that we dangle, He's in our story. Why? So that man can boast. Because it's better if we're on the throne. It's better if we're the author of the story. Because then people can look at us because our name is on the front of the book. Our picture's in the back. We wrote the dedication page. The other reality is this. If you believe that you're in his story, he is forever shaping you. The scripture in Corinthians doesn't say that he's the jar of clay. It says that we are. God's saying, You are in my story. And I've wrote a beautiful one. In fact, there's not a more beautiful story. It's a story that seems bleak at times, it's a story that proves needs a hero. And then guess what, everyone? In my story, not only do I provide the hero, but I'm the hero. And you spend your life seeing yourself in his authoring, used by him, empowered by him for his glory and his glory alone. And my friends, the freedom of that. This God just isn't a mantelpiece or a piece of Play-Doh in your hand. He is the author of life. That's uh, intense. Now let's get practical. What does that mean? That means your minutes aren't yours. When we talked about last week with our generosity, giving its way with our time, that means that your life is not yours. It means your minutes aren't yours. Man, this past Sunday, a lot family, I was like bouncing off the walls because I could not wait to remind my people that the seconds that they breathe are not their own. That's how we're living though, right? Like we're living like we own this life. That when we go to work, we deserve the paycheck. That when we walk across and shake the, you know, the, the, the president's hand at graduation, that we've earned this degree. And we use language like that that this is our life. Oh God, thank you so much for who you are and for providing me in my life all of these great things. Not one of those minutes is yours, it is his. Scripture says you were bought at a price. And that price was costly, and I praise God for that price. He paid enough for all of us, my friends, so that we we could celebrate together that we're in his story. This amazing plan of redemption. Maybe you weren't a baby in a basket. But my friends, God has done amazing things in your life to show how much you need him. And so I walk away from these chapters and I just say, what does it look like for a body to repent? What does it look like for a body to go through a complete doctrinal shift, a theological shift right now that throws the play-doh away and says, God, please help me stop using you as an anecdote in my authored story and help me submit the beautiful plan of redemption that you're carrying out right in front of my eyes. Every time you look in the mirror is a reminder of the story of redemption. And it's not your story. It's his. And he has wrote it well. Let's stand together. So I know for sure, I know for sure, that there's friends of mine in this room, some of you right now. You're just like, God, he's just a, he's just a thing. He's a phase, he's a just a facet of my life. I've compartmentalized. I'm praying tonight that the word is living and active, that the spirit moves, that repentance comes that every single one of us submit. Bend the knee again to the author of life. He's authored it. And the life that we see in the flesh is so temporary to the life that he's authored for an eternity. God, stir our hearts tonight to repent. Help us stop shaping you in a a convenient God that we can make or come up with. Teach us from your word your character that we could see who you really are. You've mapped it out well for us. Help us receive that. The parts that we struggle with, the parts that we enjoy. God, I'm just I'm praying for a massive change in this body, a shift. So God, thank you for offering life. Help us believe that you hold breath in your hands. Help us believe that we aren't deserved of anything. And so God, tonight, help us celebrate them, the unmerited grace that you provided. The love that, that we don't even come close to deserving. Make that so in these moments, God, break our hearts. And for your glory, we cannot wait. We just confess, cannot wait to see how the story plays out. Victory for you and victory for your kids. We celebrate you, God.